It's, um, it definitely has been a very tumultuous year. It's one of those years that just kind of confronts you with everything that hasn't been working. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey Posse, it's me, your host, Chrissy Benson. It's a new year and there are all kinds of great things in store for us vegans. For one, I'll most likely be going to Vegan Summerfest in Johnstown, Pennsylvania this summer. It's the longest running vegan conference in the U.S., with amazing speakers and the food is out of this world. So if you plan to attend, let me know and we can connect. Next, a huge thank you to all you readers out there for helping me hit my goal of 100 Amazon reviews of my novel, Marrying Myself, the anti-romance romance with the vegan twist. Finally, this is the year that the Vegan Posse podcast kicks into high gear with video, a membership community, and guests you won't be able to get enough of. So if you love being part of the vegan posse, be sure to like this podcast, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And check out my website, christinemelaniebenson.com, to stay up to date on me and all my various ventures. Thanks, guys. Now, on to our episode. Today, the vegan posse welcomes our very first return guest, Dr. Jen Hawk, an evolutionary psychology coach who holds a PhD in government from Harvard. She's also got a wild new podcast called The Face of the Deep. But what I and the people who know Jen appreciate about her even more than her resume is that Jen is a true seeker, never resting on her laurels, but always pushing the limits of her own knowledge and understanding, as well as her own personal limits. Needless to say, 2023 was quite a year for many of us, and Jen's no exception. In this interview, she puts it all out there in a courageous, vulnerable, reflective way that I really appreciated and hold up as a model for myself. I think you'll feel the same way. So now, on to our episode with Dr. Jen Hawk. Jen, welcome back to the Vegan Posse. So you have... (laughs) Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, do, do I have the, the dubious distinction of being your first repeat guest at this point? You That's do a, indeed. Oh, I want you a t-shirt. Have the distinct honor of being our very <laughs> first return guest on the vegan posse. So clearly you are not only ready for the ride of your life last year, but you're ready for another one. Sign me up. Let's do it again. <laughs> Let's do it again. Awesome. And in fact, the episode I recorded with you last year in 2023 uh, remains one of the top listened to episodes of all time. So it's so weird to me. I just, all, all I remember is that we talked a lot about gardening and I went on and on about gardening. So maybe there are like a lot of stealth secret gardeners out there. I think that's the case. And honestly, I consider you and psychologist, Dr. Doug Lyle, 
cult leaders of sorts. You've got a rabid tribe of fans and I'm a, I'm a happy member of the cult. Oh, well, that's, um, we, we try to run a very benevolent cult, you know, the, the, the non-coercive gross kind. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. That's why I like it. Yes. Just what I was looking for in a cult. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, no, no, like sex crimes or anything, just, <laughs> just better strategies for a better life. Right. Right. So for people who've never heard your vegan story, why don't you give us an abridged version of how and why you went vegan? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I remember getting into that in the past one in a, in a lengthy roundabout way. So I'll give the kind of abridged version this time. Um, but that it, it basically, it's, it started really when I was a kid, started when I was 10 years old and went to the Alaska State Fair with my dad. And um, within a, a few minutes of each other, we went from the petting zoo to go get lunch. And it was this very, I call it my Lisa Simpson moment where you, you look down at this undercooked hamburger um, and it's like, oh, I was just petting this animal and now I'm eating it and this is not right. This is just, it's, you just have this basic intuition as a child. So that seed was planted at that point. And then it was just a series of different things over the years that continued to move me, not just in the direction of vegetarianism, which was came like very naturally and instinctually to me. Um, but, uh, veganism eventually as well. And the influences were all all over the place. Some of them were ethical. Some of them were health, uh, more health oriented, but there was kind of this great convergence between 2005 and 2006 of this, this sort of um, perfect storm of influences and things that I read and was exposed to. I, I had read um, fast food nation a couple of years before that, which was this incredible expose, not just to, uh, the nature of the a fast food and the, the meat industry and its relationship to fast food, but also the labor conditions is sort of the, the jungle for the modern day. I was just appalled by that, that work um, by Eric Schlosser. And so that made a big impression on me. And that started nudging me in the direction of veganism. I had a few people in my life who were vegan, who were showing me the, the, you know, the, that this was possible. I was in, and that the, it was righteous and that was important as well. Um, and then in that 0506 period, the China study came out. That was a big, big influence on me. Um, I read the pornography of meat in a, in a college seminar. Um, Is that, that was Carol Adams, Carol Adams. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that's the beginning of really the vegan piece where, you know, okay, we're, we're stealing these babies um, so we can we can harvest the milk from these mothers, and uh, you know it's it's actually this this feminist issue is how how I sort of construed it at the time, and that was a really novel way of thinking about it um, for me at the time. And there was also a, a podcast, May It Rest in Peace, called Vegan Freak, um, which uh, had a big influence on me at the time. So it was just, it was just a bunch of kind of things that piled up. Um, it was the dawning of being able to find information on the internet and videos that people would make about their experiences. And um, I don't know that there was any kind of one tipping point, one, one big thing. It was just this gradual process of becoming more and more vegan. Like when people ask me what my anniversary date is, I can't tell you exactly because I was just moving in that direction with fewer and fewer exceptions for years. Um, and then one day it's sort of like, oh yeah, I just don't make exceptions anymore. Um, there's, there's no, 
room for that. Um, so it was sometime around 05, 06 that I started to think of myself really truly as a vegan. Interesting. Interesting. And so how did going vegan affect your personal relationships? Oh, it, it, it completely torpedoed most of them. <laughs> I mean, it created all kinds of friction with, uh, family members who thought I was just being, uh, you know, uh, I was called a diva. I was called, you know, just like making myself the center of attention with these things, um, and, uh, unnecessary and inappropriate demands of, kitchens and other people that we would visit. Uh, I lost a boyfriend over the whole thing who was super uncomfortable with, he was, he was okay with me being vegetarian, um, which was really like a cheese in his view of things. Um, and yeah, he just really could not handle the idea of me, even, even running an experiment with veganism, which is really kind of how I pitched it to him at the time. And, and it was how I thought of things as well. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't sure that it was going to take permanently and that I was going to be vegan forever and ever. I just wanted to really give it a shot and, and see how it worked. So yeah, the, just the, the idea that I would even, it, it was just too extreme. It was too extreme for him. Um, and he, that was, uh, seen by him and by other people in my life as just this, this indication that, oh, you, you just don't qualify for my coalition anymore. If you're going to be it wasn't even about the veganism. It was about this extremeness. Um, so <laughs> definitely it put, it put huge pressure on, uh, most of my relationships, just like, uh, a few years later when I got sober, um, I was a, I was a pretty down and out alcoholic. Um, when I got sober is this same sort of situation where the, the relationships that were formed with me, alcoholic me just could not sustain that transition. Um, people, people just couldn't handle, uh, the experiment and a new equilibrium with a, with a new approach to life. So. Right. Right. I had a guest on recently who says who does not drink. And he said that that's actually more challenging for him socially than being vegan is. What's yeah. your experience with, with that? Component? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that as far as I recall hanging out with drinkers. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my life has gotten to the point where my social life is really, um, I'm not in that position as much as I was say when, when I was in grad school, where you're around a bunch of people who are eating omnivorously and they're drinking a lot. Um, and so that, you know, if I had to compare the pressures, definitely not drinking was more of a social cost because you're, you're seeing there's something that happens with drinking where you're, you're not just not in the club. You're, you're sort of fundamentally untrustworthy. Um, I had a, I had a boyfriend, different one than the one when I went vegan, who would say that he would say, I just don't trust people who don't drink. Um, and it was, I think that's a really common sentiment around people who are regular drinkers. They, they feel like, Oh, if someone's sober. They're watching me. They're taking notes. They're judging me, which is true. <laughs> it's, it's definitely true. I have a very hard time being around people who are drinking now for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, yeah, I just sort of make my, make my little environment smaller and more compatible with my current lifestyle choices. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's almost harder for people to get their heads around someone like me, who I, I pretty much don't drink, but I'm not an alcoholic. I think people mm -hmm. at least can get their heads around why you wouldn't drink and why that's important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. it just completely 
explodes their brains to conceive of somebody who's just doesn't have an issue with alcohol, but just doesn't want to drink alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. What I ran into a lot was that people did not think I had enough of a problem to warrant not drinking. And, you know, it's, if, if you are not an alcoholic or you haven't lived with alcoholics or know them well, you don't know how much of their bandwidth is being taken up hiding what's going on with them. Um, that was basically my life for 15 years was just kind of hiding the real state of things from people who I was close to. Um, and I had many people over the years, you know, tell me, I didn't realize how drunk you were last night. It seemed like you were fine. You were, you were talking fine. Um, and so that I kind of ran into a little bit of what you're describing because people are like, Oh, I didn't think you were that you weren't that bad. And they're, of course they're filtering that just to put on our evolutionary psychology hat for a second. They're filtering that through a challenge to their status. Like, Oh, well, from my perspective, you seem like a less extreme drinker than I know that I am. And so if it was bad enough for you that you call yourself an alcoholic and had to get sober, the where does that leave me status wise? I think that was very threatening to people. That makes sense. And so were you drinking during grad school? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah grad, school, <laughs> grad school definitely made it worse. Um, you know, the sort of confluence of pressure and, um, the social ecology and the normalization of, of kind of, uh, all sorts of drug use, whether it was Adderall or, um, I mean, people, people were, uh, in, in that, even in my program, they were in the cycle of uppers and downers constantly. So people were just constantly moderating and they were using alcohol as meal replacement so they could go on extreme diets. So, I mean, there was still kind of this piece, um, this very uh, sort of vintage artifact of the graduate school experience where there were definitely women in my department and, and others uh, at the time that I was there who were kind of looking at it as, so this is where I'm going to meet my husband, right? And so there was this kind of idea of, I have to be perfect. I have to present myself in this very perfect way. I have to get perfect marks. I have to produce perfect work. Um, and the pressure that that put on people translated to a lot of drug use and abuse. And in my case, it, it, you know, alcohol being my drug of choice, alcohol and caffeine used sort of interchangeably. Um, and you know, it just, it looks normal. It looks like grad school. Right. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. I didn't think of it in those terms of women thinking they needed to meet their husband there. Yeah, there <laughs> did was, you, was... did you think that too? No, I mean, I think I saw it as a, a potentially rich dating market, like everybody did, you know, getting, but I, I wasn't single when I arrived. Um, and so I didn't go in with that thinking. Um, but I did the, the most significant relationship I had in grad school was someone who was not in my program, but was a fellow political science student at another institution. And we met at a conference. So I mm -hmm. think that it happens a lot. And there's, there is kind of an expectation that, Hey, this is your dating pool. And, um, I have high standards and so they have high standards. And I can just think of at least three or four women who very deliberately would use alcohol instead of eating. <laughs> that was a, wow. like a particular form of disordered eating. Um, and right. would say things like, Oh no, this is, this glass of wine is my calories for the night. Um, right. that was a very common thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And they won't have an olive in their martini. <laughs> no, exactly. Too fatty. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So your dissertation that you wrote for your grad school program, so for people not familiar, you completed your PhD in political science. Is that the technical? Yeah, uh, they called it government, but it is political government. science. Yeah, okay. Politics. okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did your dissertation lead you into the world of evolutionary psychology or was that path more attenuated? It was very similar to the vegan path where seeds were planted uh, in my teenage years where I would read things and sort of catalog them and and log them away. Um, So probably the first awareness I had of evolutionary psychology was The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. And there are some comments in that book that just landed on me as a teenager as, as cold, hard truths that were disturbing, but also also titillating, like, you know, women wear makeup to mimic sexual arousal. You you read something like that and it's like, oh, that is obviously true and also disturbing to think about. And what what else is like that? And so there were many, many little seeds planted where I would encounter evolutionary psychology thinking um, along the years. But because of the nature of the program that I was in, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, and the, the kind of social ecology I was embedded in, which was very progressive, very blank slate oriented, um, it, I, I ran into this real sanctioning of evolutionary thinking um, out, outside of, you know, strict sort of Darwinian thought, like, okay, we, we, can, we can talk about natural selection and even sexual selection, but it's going to stop at the neck. You know, we're not, we're not doing anything with the brain. We're not doing anything behaviorally. Uh, we're certainly not going to talk about IQ. None of that has any bearing on uh, any relationship to evolutionary processes. And all of that has been debunked. It was sort of lumped in with if you're going to talk, if you're, if you're out there spouting evolutionary psychology, you're equivalent to measuring the size of people's skulls and making inferences about their intelligence. It was, it really was seen in my circles as backwards and, um, racist and just deeply, deeply problematic with a capital P. So I stayed out of it for a long time, despite kind of getting these little insights into human nature that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and so as I was working on the dissertation, there definitely, I was running into some limitations of the conventional thinking on the problems that I was working on, um, which had to do with kind of the nature of human resilience and why certain communities struggled in certain ways and others of, you know, that we could compare them to did not. Um, and a lot of those arguments, if you go to the literature, you're going to find explanations that rest on primarily arguments about uh, ancestral trauma, like generational trauma. That was kind of the go-to answer. And I just found myself really unconvinced by that. I couldn't, I couldn't see what the mechanism was for that. It didn't make great intuitive sense to me. And so I started looking around for other ways to understand um, that problem and also just my own life. And so it was, that was around the time that I found Doug's work, um, through the diet world, through, through McDougal, because I gained a bunch of weight when I, when I got uh, sober. Um, and yeah, another, another sort of synchronous, um, convergence of things where I went to that resource, looking for help with my own health issues, my own weight issues, and found it very applicable to what I was working on academically. 
Interesting. So what was the population you were studying that you were writing about? Uh, in your dissertation? Alaska, Alaska natives um, and, and Alaska native populations across space and time, but sort of why, um, why do you see some, some groups and some tribes struggling so much despite uh, all of the assistance from the state. There's been, you know, enormous amounts of resources from the state of Alaska, from the federal government that have been funneled into these communities and they still have some of the highest rates in the nation of, you know, all, all of the indicators that you don't want to see. So all of the drug use and abuse, all of the lack of literacy, the lack of um, education, the lack of income, all, all of those things. So it's sort of like, what? well, what is actually going on here? How can there be so much help coming from outside? Uh, and yet the more help they get, the, the worse the situation becomes. Um, and so the argument that I eventually came to was not strictly an evolutionary psychology one, um, but it was more of a practical uh, narrative about the state essentially disempowering people through through a massive welfare state, uh, which is certainly not, like I didn't come up with that concept. There is also a literature, pretty big literature that makes those kinds of arguments on other populations, but um, it was still just to kind of look at it in very practical terms. Like why would people be demotivated by assistance from the state, you know, very fundamental kind of evolutionary psychology question. We talk all the time in terms of individual counseling and we call it the animal in a zoo problem. So a classic example is a 30 something kid who is still living in his mom's basement and mom is buying all his food and paying his car insurance and all of his needs are met. And he's miserable. He's depressed. He's socially anxious. He's, um, you know, just not like there's real failure to thrive there. And it's a little bit of a puzzle. Like you have everything, your life has been easier than any other human heretofore in history has experienced. Why are you so afraid to to go out there and live your life? And so kind of going from the micro to the macro in my dissertation was there's a similar sort of process at work here that you actually disempower people. Um, and, and also in the case of the Alaska case, there is a really subversive, treacherous narrative that gets uh, imposed by the state about helplessness and vulnerability that is put on those populations, which is, um, I think, a big part of, you know, it, it, you, you hear that enough about yourself and you start to believe it and it undermines resilience. So it didn't completely depart from some of the other arguments that, that I had run into, but it did incorporate the much more practical analysis that uh, was inspired by evolutionary psychology. That's so interesting. So what role if so what's your take on ancestral trauma and that whole concept well i i wouldn't say i've come full circle on it and i'm not i'm not a uh, a big believer in it these days but i definitely i mean people who listen to me on beat your genes or are familiar with my work know that i'm just i'm constantly I have, I have what Doug calls this mystic chip and this just very high openness to experience and a, a real restlessness for explaining what's happening in life and in, with any particular problem. So I don't, I don't want to rule out ancestral trauma as a component of what might be affecting those populations in any of us, because I can't 
just because I can't point to a mechanism for how it might necessarily work. I also don't have a full, total, complete understanding of human biology. Like no matter how kind of complete we may think our knowledge is, I think there's the, the, I am definitely not a biologist, but my understanding is that, you know, as, as more and more research is done, that question of epigenetics gets more and more complex. And so I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm just dismissing it totally out of hand. Um, so I'm not really in a place to say, oh, ancestral trauma does X, Y, Z, but that also leaves me in a place where I can't say it does nothing because it might be doing something. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about that. And there are very intelligent and, and legitimate scholars who are looking at that issue and, and who are definitely persuaded that it plays a role, if not a decisive role. Okay. So it sounds like in your dissertation with these populations you were studying, it sounds like you were able to identify some factors that clearly were playing a part. And it's yeah. not necessarily that you ruled out any sort of impact of ancestral trauma, but you mm -hmm. heard about the ones that you clearly witnessed. Exactly. I, I mean, I was able to look at a fairly discrete period of time since the, you know, Alaska became a state essentially, which is, it's a very young state. So we're, we're really just looking from the fifties forward. Um, and, uh, kind of watching, being, being able to within a pretty discrete period of time to measure those outcomes and to, and to really observe through historical narrative data, what was going on and how deals were being brokered and what sort of relationship between state and society, as we would call it in political science, state society relations, um, how that was changing and what the incentives were of the state at any given time to disempower these groups. So a big part of the story, it's been a long time since I sat down and read my dissertation, but <laughs> a big part <laughs> of the story is um, that, uh, you know, there, there is this, um, bargaining going on over possible petroleum resources. So we, you know, the discovery of, of oil at Prudhoe Bay changes the whole game um, right after statehood. The whole statehood question was very um, uh, kind of a, a massive gamble because nobody was really sure that there was anything up there other than a frozen wasteland. <laughs> and so I forget exactly when oil was discovered. I want to say 1962, something like that, a couple of years after statehood. Um, and then it's the scramble. Then it's like, oh, if we found this, there's got to be more. And if there's more, it's probably on tribal land. And so what we have to do as, as the state is to gain control over this tribal land and, and to convince the native population that it's a good idea because we're all sophisticated modern people now. We can't just do this colonial thing um, and kick them off of their ancestral lands. We have to we have to make a very modern deal with them where they feel they're getting something. So essentially, there was this this big settlement, this this claims act that settled the question of, of land claims. Um, and the state made out like a bandit in that deal. Mm. <laughs> um, and so a lot of my, my argument, my, my belief is that a lot of what followed from that in terms of these disempowering native native narratives, this, this sort of like the, the, the poor quote unquote, poor drunk, sad, you know, um, that we need to we need to assist these poor native Alaskans. It became this this very intentional 
way of constructing them as this less than population. And so that was, that was part of how, how do we disempower them from making their own claims on these resources? So it's a complicated story. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Um, wow. And, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. So you really pushed the limits with evolutionary psychology. You really delved deep into that. And what did you discover and what did you find to be the limits of EP? Oh my gosh, that's a huge question. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a tendency when, when we discover evolutionary psychology to get very um, exhilarated and excited about it. And I certainly experienced this as, oh my goodness, this is the key to the universe. This is, this is the handbook to life that I have been waiting for forever. It's going to tell me exactly how human relationships work. It's going to help me understand human motivation and, um, help me navigate conflicts of interest and, uh, other, other treacherous situations that I might find myself in. And it's amazingly effective at all kinds, because it, it really is reflecting what Doug would call source code, this kind of idea that, um, you know, we, we can make pretty accurate predictions, uh, like in the case of somebody feeling like their status is threatened, um, with a dietary change or, uh, somebody getting sober, um, that sort of stuff interpersonally is pretty predictable because we, we do, we're beholden to certain status dynamics that are very consistent across the species and across cultures and all of that. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. And I think when you first come across it, there is this tendency to be like, okay, I'm done. Like my, my, my quest is over. I have found the Holy grail. Um, this is it forever and ever. Amen. And, uh, I think my, my lens is always just my own life and understanding myself, my, my end of one here, trying to kind of figure out my stuff and, um, how I can, uh, get out of habits and patterns that are self-defeating and self-sabotaging and that create distress in my life and, um, undermine my relationships. And, EP was very helpful for understanding a lot of that, but I did find that it, I was running into sort of blocks with some of my really deeply ingrained crap. Um, and the, the usual retreat for evolutionary psychology, or at least behavioral genetics, of which we're sort of sisters, um, is, hey, that's just how you're wired. You just, the, the cake was baked that way. Um, it's your neuroticism, whatever it is. And so really you just have to learn to cope with that and rearrange your life to suit that situation. And that just, I, I reached a point where that was not ringing as true for me because I had this awareness of my stuff as not, not me, you know, this kind of, you, you and I had a conversation recently about IFS um, and the parts of us and how the parts of us can sort of be in disagreement with other parts of us. And that, that was my experience with some of my, my really old self-defeating patterns is like, I know that this is not really quote unquote me. There's, there's something here that is habitual that I picked up in probably in childhood dynamics that, uh, made sense at the time for navigating a pretty weird childhood. And I have continued to do those things out of habit and a reluctance to challenge those patterns. Um, and, and then I could see if I did challenge those patterns as painful as that was that I could, I could change 
my way of relating to that issue. Um, and, and that would impact my relationships or whatever goal was on the table. And so that started to, I wouldn't say it's like revealing cracks in EP. It's, it's just demonstrating the limitations of how far it can go to explaining all human behavior and, um, all human conflict. So I, 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 throw spaghetti at the wall and I use whatever sticks. I use a little, a little bit of whatever toolkit um, is available to me. And I'm not going to throw evolutionary psychology out like the baby with the bathwater. There's a lot there that's very useful, but I, at this point, incorporate lots of other tools in my own life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes, that makes tons of sense to me. It, I, I relate so much to, to the appeal of evolutionary psychology and that initial love affair where I just wanted, you know, all I, I, you know, I would listen to and read everything I could get. And I'm, I'm still, you know, still very much in that space to some extent, but I guess it's just that I'm at a point where I'm no longer discarding everything else, every other, you know, theory out of hands. Um, just because, yeah, there are a few things that I haven't been able to solve by yeah, analyzing yeah. A- analyzing them through the through the EP lens. Um, yeah. on kind of a parallel track, I'm I'm curious. Like, I have a related question about veganism itself because mm-hmm. you, like me, you know, have had struggles with food, struggles with weight, and how much would you say that veganism? helped and did not help you in that struggle? Oh, probably quite a bit. Um, you know, it's been so long since I ate uh, a sad diet. It's really, it's, it's hard to say exactly. And certainly within a vegan junk food diet, you can hit a lot of those highs the same way and be just as dysfunctional. But I think even in my most dysfunctional junk food veganism, um, I'm still not as bad off as what, what I can see in some of my extended cousins, for example, like Mm -hmm. I can, I can see even within my family system, kind of like the ghost of Christmas future, (laughs) you know, if I were still eating a standard American diet, like not only (laughs) would I have more health issues and more weight issues than I do, but I I do think the nature of the pleasure trap is that much more tenacious. And, um, it's, I, I think veganism even an unhealthy approach to it, which, you know, has, is not been a really consistent. I've, I've had that health consciousness around veganism almost since the beginning with the China study. So I've never been a true junk food vegan. Um, Mm -hmm. but definitely there are periods in my life where there's more junk food, vegan products coming in than other times. Um, but even if it does, it's, I, I think it would be much worse if that was eggs and cheese and, you know, lots of everything that goes along with that. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And what about the emotional aspects of eating? I know on your, on your amazing new podcast, the big deep, I know you've had a guest on there who talks more about emotional eating, but what's your perspective at this point in your evolution? Yeah. It's relationship to veganism or just in general, emotional eating. Uh, both. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know that it, I mean, my, my journey with emotional eating and, and binge eating and, and compulsive overeating, all of that started so young, certainly way before I was vegetarian or vegan. Um, and, and typically what I have always 
binged on has just kind of accidentally been vegan food. It was things like loaves of bread when I was a kid or chips and, you know, sort of things, things like that. Um, and so I don't know that veganism per se has a huge role to play with how I think about that problem these days, but definitely I'm getting to a point and this, this gets back to the question of, you know, the limitations of VP where, um, it, I am experimenting pretty intensely with uh, a more emotional approach that you would see in some earlier work, Janine Roth being a classic example. There, there are lots of other people in this space who've been saying for years, we're, you know, we're overeating because we're suppressing emotions. And, um, and that's the party line in uh, 12 step as well, which, you know, I ran into when I was getting sober, it's sort of like, well, why are you drinking? What are you drinking to solve? Like you're avoiding some feelings. You need to get into this stuff um, to otherwise you're just walking around like a dry drunk. Um, and it, it is at this point in my life after kind of living with those twin problems and negotiating that and kind of trying to tackle the emotional eating question from every possible angle <laughs> where I have seen the, the biggest difference from myself, um, at least as far as the current experiment goes, is in this real humility to feeling what's going on in real time with me emotionally. Um, and so it gets back to that question of, okay, Hey, I can't rule this out as really fundamental to this question. I don't know if it's the entire story. I'm pretty sure it's not pretty sure, you know, we're, we're not in trouble with weight or health or, uh, we can overeat all day long on carrots and we're fine. Um, it really is just when we get into these more calorically dense pleasure trap foods in combination with whatever it is that is making us seek the drugs. So the analogy I always use is when I was drinking myself into a blackout every night, I'm going for the highest octane alcohol that I can tolerate and that tastes good to me. So I wasn't going for, you know, Everclear or anything like that, but I was going for, I did not want some sort of, um, you know, session ale. I wanted, I wanted a, like a 9% beer, like something really, really pretty heavy that was going to have a really fast effect and get me that result quickly. Um, or I wanted wine, which was even higher alcohol by volume. So those I was seeking, not just the drug, but an intense version of the drug that would get me the effect as quickly as I could get me out of the state that I wanted to escape as quickly as I could. And I think, of course, we have the same relationship with food. I can overeat and try to soothe my, suppress my emotions with carrots or potatoes. And I can, I can get a certain amount of suppression doing that, but it's going to be way more effective with bread or chips and hummus or vegan pizza or whatever it is that we're going to. Yeah. It's so interesting because as you know, I've done a lot of, <laughs> I've had my own journey around compulsive overeating and was part of a 12 step program for a long time. So there's a lot of focus on feelings and what are you feeling mm -hmm. that drives you to compulsively overeat and to binge. And I remember a friend of mine in that 12 step program, I remember her realizing, oh, I eat preemptively. Like mm. I don't even have the feeling anymore because I'm just constantly compulsive overeating to ward off any potential unpleasant, uncomfortable totally. emotion. I think that's huge. I, yeah. and I, I have had this awareness now for a while that what binge eating does for me uh, is that it cuts me off from, from body awareness. And so, you know, if you, if you're stuffing yourself full of food, all you can feel physically 
is, you know, this discomfort and this overwhelm and this you're sick and you, you, you know, it just feels gross. Um, but that is going to completely foreclose what's really going on with your body, whatever your body is trying to tell you about a specific situation. And because I am someone who has my emotions so suppressed generally, um, often the only wisdom of what I'm feeling in the moment that's available to me is starts in the body. I can tell you, okay, I don't know what I'm feeling, but I do know that my stomach feels really tight or that my, my throat feels like it's closing up. Um, those things I can identify, but not if I'm, especially if I've preemptively binged as she is, she's talking about like, yeah, if I know that I'm going into a difficult situation, a preemptive binge makes a ton of sense because it's just not going to bring up those physical cues that might put me into a space where I might have to investigate what it is that I'm actually suppressing. Yeah. And it makes it trickier too, because often like you talked about feeling your feelings in real time. And that's another concept I relate to a lot because often I feel like my feelings are delayed <laughs> just yeah. in general. Like yeah. I, I've become aware that there's always going to be a lot of processing <laughs> that happens after anything significant <laughs> or even insignificant. So yeah. don't assume that, you know, paying attention in that moment is necessarily going to yield me all the information that mm. <laughs> I need about what's happening with me because more is going to be revealed in the <laughs> days or weeks. And Yeah. And uh, most of our lives, we're not in a position to be in the moment where we're getting triggered and, and then be like, Oh, just, you know, pause the tape let right, me go here right. and, and think about, you know, let me really get into that feeling. You do have to right. kind of bookmark it and come yes. back to it later, which is not how a child would do it. You know, it's not, it's not a truly like humble relationship to what is coming up for you. Um, a, a child would drop everything and cry right there. Um, and so just the fact that we feel like, oh no, I have to keep it together and impression manage my way until I can get home and then really cry. Well, there's so many opportunities between now and then to not allow that to happen, to distract ourselves, to preemptively binge, to, you know, just a million different things that we can do. And so we never actually get to the point where whatever it was that came up when I got triggered at 10 AM today, by the time I'm home and really able to, to go through it, it, I've, I've forgotten it, or at least I've buried it under so much distraction and deflection that I can't access it anymore. Right. Right. So, well, on a personal note, you do a lot of coaching and consulting with people, you know, with helping people navigate life issues and challenges. Um, as a coach, do you feel pressured to seem like you yourself have it all together? Yeah, less than I used to. I, um, I think definitely that comes with the territory, um, especially if you're in the the hyper health arena, as we call it. <laughs> and so <laughs> there, um, you know, it's been, uh, I've, I lost a hundred pounds a few years ago and I've regained depending on the day, somewhere between 20 and 25 pounds of that. And that's, that is a, um, constant sort of source of, of, you know, a desire to retreat and to not put myself out there and to feel like a fraud and an imposter and all of those things that go along with that. I, I had a client, um, a couple of days ago, we were talking about some of these issues and 
we're talking about the plant-based space in particular and the kind of gurus in the plant-based space and the, the vegan doctors in particular and how none of them have ever struggled with compulsive overeating and they don't, they don't have this history and they're presenting themselves kind of as these experts and this is what you do and it's the food and just fix it and, and you'll be good. Um, and she was asking me, well, why aren't there more people like you who are, you know, out there in the space who are uh, able to, to speak from experience and it was this, it was this problem. It was this feeling of who am I to tell you how to fix yourself? If clearly I haven't gotten it all together myself and I have issues that I'm still working on and working through. Um, and I think that is such a deterrent, especially for women to, you know, just, just feel it and do it anyway. Um, Janine Roth has a wonderful story about when she kind of, I think she read, I forget what it was that woke her up. I think fat is a family affair might've been the book that kind of caught her attention and convinced her that um, emotional suppression was at the, at the heart of her compulsive overeating. Um, and she tells the story of like the first workshop that she led, she rented some, some, some room at a community center or something and showed up in her like pajamas, still overweight, thinking like, who is going to possibly listen to what I have to say? Um, but, you know, she had enormous wisdom to share. So I think we can be so hard on ourselves. And so um, it can really lead us into silencing ourselves and to, to withdrawing from the public gaze because we're, we're so intimidated by that judgment. Um, but the truth is we're all works in progress. So. Right, right. It's all a form of the ego trap, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, imposter syndrome slash ego trap being used kind of interchangeably. Like, oh yeah, I. there's no reason for me, like in, unless I'm putting myself out there in perfection, there's there's no reason for me to, I, you, you can't judge me. You can't judge me because I'm not making myself available to be judged. And, right. But, right. But what that does, like at a personal psychological level is this feeling of real defeat and, um, you know, the, this internal conflict that comes up as a result of that. Uh, like, oh, well, one day I, I will be good enough to you know, put myself out there again. And that's a really bad space for anybody to be in. Right. It's a really bad space. And also it's just not really logical just in general, because who among us is going to reach a point where there's nothing for us to improve upon or discover yeah. or grow. I mean, that would be a pretty boring life if we've suddenly figured totally. it all out. And and, and it would be a huge red flag. It'd be a, like, yeah. I don't, like my, my ex who didn't trust people who don't drink. I don't trust people who are like, I figured it all out. I have all the answers. Follow me. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it's, you know, the, the, the reality of life is so much messier than that. And, um, and, and if you are, if you've, if you've reached some kind of pinnacle of understanding of yourself, that's telling me that, yeah, you're not, uh, you're not humble to what's going on with you and in a process of growth, which, you know, according to my kind of metaphysical concept of the universe is an indefinite process. So, um, I, I definitely, uh, I, I subscribe to that myself and, and try not to judge other people too much for it. And I do, it, I, I do have a lot of wariness about just, you know, buy my program for four easy installments of how to fix your life in three days. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm totally with you on that. And we've had conversations on this subject. The only area where I have 
a really strong level of certainty that, you know, <laughs> the way you describe it sort of makes me a little nervous is just my conviction of the benefits and the righteousness and the health advantages of a whole food plant-based diet, you know? So yeah, <laughs> how yeah. do you, how do you like allow for that exception in your own life? Because I imagine yeah. you share my certainty. I definitely, yeah, that probably is my, my only exception <laughs> as well. Yeah. I guess I hold it as lightly as I can in terms of certainty about anything empirical about it. Um, and so, you know, all of, all of the health claims, um, notwithstanding there, there definitely, there does seem to be very compelling evidence with all of the health claims. And those are important for my own cost benefit analysis, or at least they, they have played an important role at times. Um, but what keeps me vegan is the moral ethical piece. And so, you know, the moral ethical piece that has not changed since I was 10 years old, um, and at the state fair. So that, that is something just at like looking at my life and what has been true and consistent for that long. There's almost nothing that has been true and consistent that long. Um, certainly empirically, there are a couple of moral and ethical things that have been true and consistent that long. And that's one of them. And so I, I just sort of like, is, is this something that felt true to me at 10 <laughs> and important to do. And in this moment still feels like, am I making the most compassionate choice? Am I making the kindest choice? Am I making the truest choice? Um, that, that all continues to remain true for me. So it's yeah. possible that that could change because anything can change, but I, I have not seen it change as long as I've had conscious awareness of it, where, <laughs> right. whereas everything else has been in total flux. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. And yeah, I mean, why at the end of the day, why hurt an animal if we don't have to? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's kind of as simple as that. And I think the the guys who made the movie Cowspiracy and What the Health and Seaspiracy, they've got a new movie coming out called Christspiracy. I saw and, the trailer for that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they've tentatively committed to come on the podcast. So I'll be really interested to talk oh, to them. That'll be yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. That'll be cool. But I think the question that they pose to people in, you know, exploring the content of that film is, is there a spiritual way to kill an animal? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. It's like, yeah. It's funny how many ways we can come up with to rationalize and justify, but at the end of the day, you know, is there really a way to do it? Yeah. Just, and, and how many people have been in that position and had, had to kill an animal and, you know, done it, done it themselves. And I, I mean, lots of people have, and you will, you will have a vigorous defense of, of killing animals come from people who are on farms or who have grown up that way. Um, but I think for most of us, you're, we, we have just this innate revulsion to that idea. Um, especially those of us who have companion animals who are just like, this is inconceivably impossible to, to do. Um, and so at some point the, the consistency has to unravel if you can't do it yourself and you can't imagine doing it to your companion animal, like where, why are you drawing these arbitrary standards? Right. Right. So you've weighed on weighed in on some really controversial subjects over these past few years, especially with regard to COVID-19. Um, mm. What's that journey been like for you and how is it these days? Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, this just kind of all goes back to the, the, you know, tell the truth as much as you can understand it in the moment with the understanding that, you know, as, as, uh, the, the big Lebowski tells us new shit has come to light, man. <laughs> like you can change your mind. You can, you can be, uh, convinced completely in one moment and, and completely convinced of something else in another moment. So my relationship to truth is a little different from a lot of people who are like, I just tell the truth. I just pursue the truth. Um, I definitely tell the truth and pursue the truth, but it's always, this is my best understanding of what is true right now. And so with COVID, with the, the whole way that um, this, the, the pandemic uh, rollout was <laughs> unleashed upon an unwitting population, um, my feelings and understanding of that, both as my background as a political scientist and, and just my BS detector and it just strong intuition has been from the very beginning that this is not what it seems to be. Um, and this is being deployed to, uh, make a lot of money and to manipulate people in pretty specific ways to, to advance specific interests. And the specifics of that may change over time as I learn new things or unlearn old things. Um, but my, my feeling that it is definitely not what we were told it was, and it is not what it seems to be has remained really consistent. Um, so yeah, I haven't, I haven't been too afraid to talk about that. Um, but it definitely has gotten me in trouble a bit and a couple of strikes on YouTube. And <laughs> I just, they actually, YouTube just took down a very old video that has been up sometime early 2021. I just got a notification from them the other day that, oh, we have removed your such and such for medical misinformation. Wow. So, good times. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and all, all I ever said was, you know, this is like, it, I, I, I am, uh, not making any big claims about harm. I am pointing to publicly available data and, and other research that might be making those claims and saying, Hey, this is out there and it, it should give you pause and people should know about it, uh, and incorporate it into their informed consent about whether they are going to get the shot or how they're going to think about the risks of COVID in general. Um, or anything related to that. And, and I see that as such a less hazardous position to be in morally than go do this or else. Um, go do this thing because I know that it's the right thing to do um, and that you are wrong if you don't do it. Like that just on its face strikes me as such a less morally tenable position to be in um, than, hey, 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 there's, there are lots of dissenting voices and I'm going to present some of them to you so you can read them and exercise more caution and, and make your own decision. I've just never understood how that is such an uneven um, perspective of who's doing more, more harm. It seems to me completely upside down. Right. Right. And even I'm, I'm recalling the opening chapter of the China study, or maybe it was the the preface by T. Colin Campbell. And he talks about, it's been a long time since I read it, but I remember when I read that introduction, he made the comment that he, it was something along, you know, the lines of the nature of truth or the nature of like wisdom or evidence or something. And he was, he basically phrased it as, you know, we can, we can embark on this grand search for truth. You know, we can, that, 
that can occupy us, you know, from now until the time of our death. But in the meantime, we have to make some decisions about how to live Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. to eat. And so here's some evidence that, you know, I found relevant to making my own decisions on these subjects. And here's the evidence for you to consider and weigh and make your own choices. And you can continue on that grand search for truth. But in the meantime, you know, how are you going to live and how are you going to eat? Um, yeah, I just exactly. thought that was a great way of phrasing it. And it sounds to me like you apply the same philosophy and approach to, to yeah. your own life and your own quest. Yeah. Like with the best available discernment and knowledge that I have in this moment, what is the choice I can make that does the least harm and that advances me in a state of love? You know, like what, what does that look like? What is my best guess of what that would be? It doesn't mean that it's a perfect guess. Doesn't mean that in six months or three years, I'm, I'm going to stand by that choice, but in this moment, yeah, you have to eat lunch. You have to decide whether you're going to comply with a mandate or not. You have to all like, you know, we're presented with these choices. And so having some kind of rubric of how to make those choices is essential. Um, even if it's imperfect and of course it's imperfect because we are not omnipotent. Right. Unfortunately. And of course, a lot of, a lot of vegans did not question COVID and the related medical procedures nearly to the extent that people like you did, that I did, that Dr. Doug Lyle did. Mm -hmm. Is there, do you have any explanation for that lack of, of questioning among a lot of the vegan community? I think some of it comes from feeling like veganism is still a fringe thing. Um, and you know, let's not make it more of a fringe thing. Like let's, let's not rule out potential new adherence of an important lifestyle choice that reduces a great deal of harm by alienating people with this other issue. I think, I think that is probably a lot of it. Um, a lot of it is just kind of, uh, conventional, um, medical training and medical thinking in a lot of the world, the, a lot of the plant-based world, I think that's part of it as well, but probably if I had to pin it on something in particular, it would just be like, well, let's not, uh, you know, let's not rock the boat too much. Let's, let's just make this palatable to everybody, um, and, and not tarnish ourselves as even more extreme than we might already be seen to be. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because I was at vegan summer fest where most, most of the people there definitely had, you know, were convinced of the mainstream narrative around, around COVID and and the shots. And I remember a friend of mine, her, she speculated that maybe the reason is that veganism is becoming just less radical and more mainstream and kind of more conventional And so that people don't want to jeopardize similar to Mm -hmm. kind of what you were saying, people Mm -hmm. don't want to jeopardize like the increasing acceptance of veganism as kind of normalized and part of the, you know, traditional medical healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't want to just jeopardize that, that status again, back to status. Totally. I I think it's a, a huge part of the story and, you know, the individual, analyses that are going on that are coming from, uh, conventionally trained MDs and, and other people who are very trusting of the mainstream medical literature, I think is also there's, there's sort of 
you know, either you trust that literature or you don't. Um, and I think, you know, being, being someone who already was in a position of a lot of skepticism, um, toward just, just because it's in a flagship medical journal does not mean I'm going to take it at face value. Uh, that's not something that you find a lot in sort of the, yeah, that mainstream acceptable, we're, we're making real progress, turning, turning the tide here toward veganism world. You only find that on the fringes. And, and I think there is this impulse to create a divide between those two camps. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. It's so interesting how the challenges change, you know, the challenges of the movement and carrying the message. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those of us who have been around for a long time, I think, remember how much of a pariah that we felt at the beginning and how unusual it was. And, um, you know, just people would say things to me like, oh, if I don't eat eggs, my hair will fall out. And my uh, beloved undergraduate advisor had, had dabbled with veganism briefly and said that he just, he couldn't, he just lost so much weight that he was skeletal and he just couldn't, couldn't take it. And so he had to go back to vegetarianism. Like there was a lot of that sort of thinking, even as late as 2005 or so. Um, and you certainly couldn't get the cornucopia of processed garbage that you can get these days. Right. <laughs> and so right. there was a feeling that you were really a scrappy little outsider if you, if you were vegan at that time. Um, and so I think the, on the one hand, people who are really engaged in a process to convert people and to spread the message and to bring more people over to veganism, they remember that. And they're really loath to go back to that because they remember how hard it was to even get a hearing or to, to get public publicly accepted. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, some of us who were in that situation are like, no, that was the, <laughs> that was the, those, those values that brought us there are the same values that sustain this process now. Um, but I think there's exactly. a lot of just a lot of conflicting tensions and, and yeah. I, you would expect that in a movement that's gotten as big as veganism has gotten. Um, and that, that it is very, um, you know, gets a lot of its authority from this kind of evidence-based approach. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting because I am fascinated by the medical evidence and the health benefits of veganism. I, I truly am. I've always been interested in nutrition, but like you, that was not what caused me to go vegan. <laughs> like, so yeah. Even, yeah. even if all that stuff were, you know, irrelevant or wrong, um, yeah, still arrive at the same same place of, of making the yep. choice to go vegan. So yeah. yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, well, on a, on a personal note, you've had, you've had quite a year. It's been pretty tumultuous for you. You've had a lot of big changes. Um, how, how are you doing and how are things going and what's, what's next? We're recording this interview on the first day of 2024. So it's a good time yeah. to talk about new yeah. beginnings. Yeah, it's, um, it definitely has been a very tumultuous year. Um, it's, it's one of those years that just, uh, kind of confronts you with everything that hasn't been working, hasn't been like all of these to go back to that earlier conversation about the limitations of VP and, uh, personal patterns and habits and where, where is the growth frontier for any given individual? Um, sometimes it takes a really crappy year to confront you with 
okay, well here you've hit your wall. Like there, there is there, you have a choice at this point to do some tough work and to grow beyond that. Um, and to really confront these demons or not. And I think, uh, life has this way of bringing you these opportunities and, life has a way of uh, returning those opportunities to you if you neglect them the first couple of times. <laughs> and um, it's what Doug calls the the golden mallet, the golden mallet school of um, of Knox. The, the universe just gives you a golden mallet upside the head to, to kind of wake you up. And um, definitely there's nothing that has happened this year um, in terms of the emotional fallout from it that I haven't had sort of a preview of at other points in my life. Um, and, but I have ignored, deflected, avoided, you know, just found, found ways to kind of not do the, the tough inner work that I think does need to be done. So, so yeah, I see it as a year of, um, kind of paradoxically both putting myself out there more because I, I did just start this new podcast that has been a really great outlet for me to talk about all kinds of crazy stuff <laughs> and we'll, we'll get even crazier as it goes, I'm sure. Um, but also like really introspective, really, um, getting into that deep emotional terrain of figuring out like, what are my limitations? Where am I really self self-limiting and self-sabotaging and, um, how can I learn to love my triggers rather than try to, uh, ignore them and avoid them. I think that's, that's really key, um, for everybody, but it's become super apparent to me that that's, that's the next frontier of the work to be done. Right. Right. Well, good for you and kudos and, you know, <laughs> solidarity, um, because you, you like me are newly single and mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. very, very non-vegan world of ours. Uh, do you have any, any tips or advice or thoughts oh God, to share about no. the dating process for, for people out there listening? I mean, it's, yeah, I, I would not listen to my past advice about <laughs> dating tips and that came from a very, uh, rigid evolutionary psychology paradigm. I think, I think the really rigid evolutionary psychology paradigm when applied to dating has a tendency of making people very cynical, um, very bitter, very, uh, just sort of kind of hardened to the process of, and also discovery. just hopeless. <laughs> well, yeah. And nihilistic and hopeless. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I've seen that happen, um, over and over. I saw it happen to myself when I was, I was dating when I was in that space and I just, um, yeah, I, I would not take my, my past advice on that, on that question, even though it might lead to short-term success in terms of like how to more effectively manipulate the, <laughs> the dating dynamics. And, um, there, not that there's zero truth in some of those dynamics, but I think to go all in on it in that, in that kind of very materialist, um, we're just here to, to have as much fun as we can. And then, then it's the void. I just think that's a terrible way to <laughs> approach existence. So yeah, I am definitely not dating at this point, but I guess if I had advice, it would just be to keep a very open mind and a very open heart and to not let any particular interaction harden that heart and shut you down to possibility. I love that. I'll take that advice. I think that's very good advice. Um, but what, what suggestions would you have for pe women like us, especially because I've interviewed a number of people on this podcast who've said very confidently that if they weren't, if they weren't vegan, they would probably have a mate 
or you'd be married. Mm, mm, yeah. Where, where are you with that? You know, with that crossroads, like of, of dating, you know, because obviously so few people out there are vegan. Yeah. So yeah. where do you draw your own lines? I think it's different for everybody because some people will have a higher tolerance for a, um, mixed omnivorous relationship than other people. <laughs> um, and my own limitation is that, yeah, I, I really, I, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't think I would be able to date someone who's not vegan. Um, just because it is a, it's just a proxy for so many things. Um, like in addition to just the disgust factor, it's just, it's, it's telling me so much about who you are. Um, and, and, but I know that you have a little more flexibility on that in terms of like, well, if there's willingness and there's interest and there's like, you know, IE, I could convert for you, baby, (laughs) then, then maybe we can give that, that guy an opportunity. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's down to the individual and what their tolerance is. And of course we can make these grand sweeping things. I can, I can say, Oh, I would never date a non-vegan and uh, be proven wrong by that. That, that could happen. I'm not, you know, we can't rule those things out. Um, but I think it's, a it's this metaphysical shift. And I, I talk about this a lot. Um, in, in terms of a lot of different questions, but just this getting out of this, oh my God, there's only four vegan men left on the planet. And so I'm going to be single forever. Just that kind of, uh, very materialist, very scarcity centric mindset, I think does not do us any favors, even if it's true. Um, because what, what does that mean? Are you, are you going to, uh, then adjust your game somehow to optimize that situation and make you more manipulative and deceptive and whatever comes along with that territory of trying to extract those very limited resources. Like that's not a great scenario for anybody to be following. So, um, even though it might be naive and airy fairy, and I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm reassuring myself with the metaphysics that is, is more of that kind of, you know, I, I have some trust in the universe in this process. It's, if it's, if it's for you, it doesn't miss you kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all we can do is be true to ourselves and be open and, you know, hope for the best and, you know, just, just put yourself out there and see what happens. But there's, there's no trade-off for me anymore that comes with, okay, yeah, it's my odds are so low here that I'm going to let that make me miserable and, and feel really, um, like I'm just holding on to opportunities so tightly and so afraid to lose them. I, I just think that's not a great place to be interpersonally or spiritually. Right. It's not a fun way to live. It's yeah, and it's not a fun way to live. It doesn't feel very good. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it also doesn't work. <laughs> so. Yeah. It turns out it doesn't work. turns out that, yeah, that, that kind of fear being brought into, um, an interpersonal dynamic will usually totally torpedo the whole thing. Um, right. And right. It, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let me just ask you about this book of yours that you're co-writing with Dr. Doug Lyle. Any, mm-hmm. any news on that? 
when people he, can expect that. I, I think he has been telling, I've, I've taken to just forwarding the many emails I get that are like, <laughs> when's the book coming out? I just send them to him now. <laughs> um, and I think what he's been telling people is hopefully like neck this, this fall, fall of 2024 is kind of his estimate based on where we're at and what remains to be done. Um, Doug is infinitely creative and always coming up with new chapters, <laughs> and new concepts and new things that he wants to do. So like if we had stopped a year ago with what the kind of plan was, we'd be done by now, but new, new things have come in and, um, the, the terrain of the book has shifted. So there's a lot, I mean, a ton of it is written. It is a, it is a, it is a vast <laughs> tome. Um, and we're, it's a curse and a blessing that we're self-publishing because we don't have some publisher breathing down our neck with any deadlines, which on the one hand might force, you know, an actual release at some point, but on the other, we can be much more, fluid and uh, creative and respond to changing times. Obviously we had to address the COVID thing um, and just other things too. So I can't give you a hard release date because as soon as I do, it's going to change, but it's definitely still happening. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I've already ordered my copy. I think you were able to pre-order. So Oh. Yeah, the that's um, a lifetime membership of our Living Wisdom Library is the is the only way you can pre-order right now. Um, and yes, so if people, I highly people want to get, on, yeah, it's kind of our version of a Kickstarter. It's like a you know you're sort of you're sort of indicating some faith oh. in us to eventually produce the thing. <laughs> so right, right. Um, and in the meantime, you get a couple of little yet you know private Q and A's and things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, that's brilliant. Yeah. And what's the best place for people to check out your podcast, the big deep. Yeah. It's, um, the face of the deep is the um, face actually, of the deep. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I keep no, it's okay. It it's, it's a phrase. That's it's perfect. a phrase from, uh, from Genesis. It's, uh, it's, oh. you know, the, the ocean, uh, before, before God made the world was the face of the deep across the face of the deep. Um, so I thought that was just very poetic and evocative. Very poetic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the whole, so it's the a whole, religious podcast you're saying. It's not, it's, it's um, <laughs> I'm being the, sarcastic, of course. Yeah. Yes, okay. It's not, not a religious podcast. I mean, I am very interested yeah. in um, like one of my favorite podcasts is, is this guy who runs this a podcast just he calls it the theory of everything podcast and so he'll he'll talk to everyone from the most ardent atheist to the most absolutely woo woo we're we're you know living in a simulation run by ufo <laughs> you know right, like, it's right. just everywhere and so i sort of uh, i approach it that way um i'm interested in a lot of different metaphysical understandings of the universe. And, um, I'm always in this, I'm just a seeker. I just want, I just want more information and I just want to understand, and I'm very open to a lot of different spiritual explanations, um, and find them fascinating mm -hmm. and kind of just put everything together in my own, my own little cosmology. Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, I wouldn't call it religious. I definitely would, would, um, yeah, it's, it's it, in addition to many other things, it is spiritual though. So that's, that's a fair assessment. Mm -hmm. So you can find mm -hmm. it on iTunes, the face of the deep. Um, it also is, uh, I post the episodes to my YouTube channel, so you can just uh, search my name, um, on YouTube. And, right. um, Great. and usually if I remember, I will also post things on my website, which is just jenhawk.com. Okay. Okay. And is that also the best place for people to reach you for coaching and consulting? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the hub. Yeah. That's the hub. Okay. So yeah. everybody go to jenhawk.com and check out the face of the deep. Which and if you is, join, yeah. join my mailing list on my website too, you'll get a email every time I have a new episode. So 
Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right, Jen. Well, thank you so much for joining us again on the vegan posse and for being part of the vegan posse. In fact, absolutely <laughs> right in my life 2.0 right on, right on. <laughs> and it's going to be a great year. I predict for you, for me, for absolutely. everyone listening, it's going to be yes. epic, all yes. the hardship and angst and turmoil that we went through last year is going to this year just yield the riches and the blossoms and the joy and the light. I I like the way you think. I like the, I like the cut of your jib. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right, Jen. Well, I ask all, all of my guests this, and you've already heard the question, but see if anything else comes to mind. Um, Is there a particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about? What did I say last time? (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, the first, I, I think integrity is a, a big one. I think yeah. just, the, and that that's kind of a theme of so much of what we've talked about, like that, that whole idea of what's the best choice right now, based on what I, what I feel to be most just and true and humane and compassionate and all of that. Um, right. And, and right. just not, not splitting yourself to be in some sort of addiction to a certain kind of food or to please other people or any, any of that kind of stuff, but just like what feels right to me, what feels right to me as a child at that petting Mm. zoo. Um, Mm. and so, yeah, for veganism and for everything else, I'm going to, I'm going to go with integrity. Yeah. Veganism and relationships. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. True, true to yourself. Yeah. True. Yep. Indeed. All right. Well, we close every episode of the vegan posse by taking 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human who desire, as we all do safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. So Dr. Jen Mm -hmm. Hawk, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for the animals. And we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Jen. And thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true. Thanks, Chrissy.